0: Giving it 110% with Barry Nicholls on ABC Grandstand. Hello and welcome to my show, which is about sport, but it's about much more than that. And today we're going to be looking back at the back-to-back Ashes series, 2013-2014. Here's a sample. There it is, he's got a- Yeah, another one goes. That was courtesy of Channel 9. Uh, Gideon Haig, the world's leading cricket writer, is going to be along to give us his take. He saw all of the test matches. On another
1: note, we're going to be looking at the search for more football umpires. We see probably a challenge as far as we're not getting... We're getting some young kids starting umpiring, Barry, which is great. But I suppose I guess the, uh, the retention of umpires is difficult when, um, I suppose, kids 15, 16, 17 start to get their cars and licences, etc. The excitement probably wanes for umpiring. And I think across the country every week we have about 18,000 games of footy and we only fill them out that 11,000 umpires, which is a little bit sad.
0: AFL umpire Dean Margetts there talking about the challenges in attracting more umpires for Aussie rules football. Hope you can stay with us for the next half an hour.
2: Can your team win the 2014 AFL flag? Find out in ABC Footy Magazine. Edited by ABC Grandstand's Jared Whateley, it's your essential season guide with player and team profiles, statistics and exclusive insights from AFL experts and footy legends. Get all this and more in ABC Footy Magazine, the must-have season guide for every AFL fan. On sale now at newsagents, ABC Shops and Centres and ABC Online.
0: 110% Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand. Well, it seemed to come and go in a blink of an eye. Well, perhaps not for the English cricket team. Talking about the summer, but that was only one part, wasn't it, of the back-to-back Ashes series. We had one in England that Australia lost. So what did we learn from these 10 test matches? And uh, whatever we learned. Was that reflected in Australia's performance against South Africa, which saw it win the Series 2-1? Gideon Haig has written a book about this. And uh, he's with us now. Get in, good. Uh, well, good evening to you in Melbourne. Yeah,
2: good day. Didn't go with a <laughs> like a blink of an eye for me, mate. Uh, <laughs> we both sides le- of the world. <laughs> Ten Test matches. I was there for each one.
0: Well, let, we better let the listener know. The book's called Ashes to Ashes: How Australia mm. Came Back and England Came Unstuck, two thousand and thirteen, fourteen. Well, look, you're someone born in England, so I know that All in right. the past you, you you've had a, a, a slight sympathy or a slight leaning towards England. You've lived in Australia for a long time. Mm. So were you barracking for England in England? Or
2: well, well, I was barracking for Ashes Cricket because, you know, it's 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 the last bastion of tradition uh, in a game that I that I love. It's um, I guess it's it's the one where most of my chief memories are, are bound up. My um my recollections stretch back to the summer of seventy four five, you know, Thompson and Lily. Um, and there are actually some strong similarities between uh between that summer and the one that we've just seen in Australia. Um, uh, Mitchell Johnson, to me, you know, looks like Lily and bowls like Thompson. And, um, and in a sense, it had a similar kind of cowing effect on, uh, on an England team that didn't quite know what had hit it.
0: Well, let's just come back a few steps because uh, over in England, of course, we had the axing of Mickey Arthur and Darren Lehman took over as coach. How, I mean, how much did that influence Australia's success?
2: Um, well, I think momentously, uh, there's no doubt about it. I think um, it, it gave it gave Australia permission to um, to uh, it, it, there was a honeymoon period for Lehman that he was able to take advantage of, and there was an opportunity perhaps to uh, interrupt the downward slope that Australian cricket had taken in India. There was a sense of renewal uh, that. Uh, Lehman was able to pass on to his uh, his young men and I guess Lehman's, probably Lehman's greatest achievement will be thought to be his 5-0 the team's 5-0 win out here but I was just as impressed by Australia in England in the sense that even though they went down love 3 they never gave in to dismay they never gave a sense that they were just turning up to go through the motions and they, you know, even in the dead test at the, at the very end of the tour, uh, they showed that, um, it was a sense, in a sense, the first test of the, of the next series. It was a proclamation of their, of their attacking intent and their desire to take the game up to England. And it proved that, um, you know, England as formidably well managed and well resourced and, and well managed as, uh, as, as they were, uh, when they tried to take the same approach to cricket in Australia as they had in England, which is basically a a defensive approach, uh, a wait-and-see approach, um, Lehman and and Clark, Michael Clark, the Australian captain, were able to take advantage of them.
0: My guest, Gideon Haig, written... His most recent book is called Ashes to Ashes, How Australia Came Back and England, Came Unstuck, 2013 to 2014. Um, You were talking earlier, Gideon, about Mitch Johnson... Um, how how significant or how important was his role in Australia's performance against England in Australia
2: oh, well I mean statistically it's um, it's uh, impossible to doubt you know that he was the um, if there was a single difference between the sides it was the fact that that Johnson was capable of operating at um, at speeds that other bowlers around the world are, are incapable of reaching Uh he was um he was uh, integral to the australian plan of roughing up the um the england batsmen particularly those seven and below who'd been quite resilient in england and, and difficult to get out and that and it um redeemed the, the failings of uh, of of their top order there and i think in general you know when you've got a player like that in your ranks uh, it adds to your sense of confidence, it adds to your sense of competitiveness, it adds to your aggression. I got the feeling that a lot of the Australian kind of verbal abrasion that um, that uh, once again became identified with Australian cricket last summer, flowed from the fact that they had a bowler on their side who was capable of dishing out punishment uh, and intimidating the opposition and everyone as a result Walked a bit taller and, and talked a bit louder.
0: Is there a surprise? I suppose he was the surprise, wasn't he? He was the main surprise because we didn't. Uh, you know, there would have been a number of people who said, "Look, give him a go." But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, yeah. were there are other. I suppose hadn't as well.
2: Right? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, it was a wonderful, um, you know, concatenation of circumstances, an alignment of, of the stars. Everything worked in Australia's favour in a way that perhaps it never will again. But uh, but certainly. Uh, you could. I got a when I watched Johnson in the in the ODIs in England after the series, it was noticeable just how much quicker he was than everybody else, and and how he forced players to uh, to to raise their their games at cog. I mean, the game has become pretty grooved, hasn't it? At sort of speeds between 135 and 142, and all of a sudden, when a guy can get to 150 kilometres an hour in his first over. Uh, all the preparation in the world is not going to ready you for that um, That under test match circumstances. And then of course those, those three older players had an absolute golden summer, Chris Rogers, Brad Haddon and, and Ryan Harris, who perhaps none of whom a year earlier would have been considered close to Australian selection or Australian calculations. Brad Haddon seemed to have receded from view since coming home early from the West Indies tour for, for personal reasons. Matthew Wade seemed well entrenched as, as his successor. Chris Rogers was, um, you know, unsure of his place even in the, in the Victorian setup at the time. He was considered to be something of an anachronism, an old fashioned, uh, attack blunting, uh, defensive opener. And Ryan Harris. Well, Ryan Harris um, had dropped out after the West Indies tour as well. Suffered a long-term injury, had to have several operations. Was taking the long way back. You wouldn't have backed him to have been fit for uh, for ten consecutive Test matches. In fact, he played nine of the uh, of, of the ten of the Ashes, and has now played three more and driven himself back into the surgeon's hands but he's done it in a worthy cause and and my word, uh, day in day out over those two series he was the best bowler on either side I uh, hardly hope to see better more, and more consistent Test match fast bowling than I saw from Ryan Harris
0: Kevin Peterson it's an interesting story, what's happened with him. Um, I mean, he he sure. performed well enough, I suppose, out here. He was one of the leading run scorers for England, but he's been pretty well um, retired, hasn't he, by England in terms of international cricket. Do you think they've done the right
2: thing? Well, we don't really know whether they've done the right thing because no-one's really saying what transpired. Everyone's sort of signed up to a confidentiality agreement. Uh, everyone's keeping their own counsel. We don't know exactly what, um, how... Peterson is meant to have um, alienated himself from his teammates. I guess what we've discovered is that victory can obscure a lot of differences and defeat can can open a lot of wounds. I suspect that there was abiding misgivings about Peterson, stretching back to 2012 when he'd been at loggerheads with, with his England teammates and had professed at a press conference that it was hard to be me, and uh, it had all become, you know, rather operatic and, uh, and a little bit um, over the top and a little bit un-English too. Uh, and perhaps we were reminded once again that, um, that Peterson was fundamentally a, a flag of convenience cricketer who was enticed by the prospect of playing test cricket rather than specifically representing his country.
0: Australia has toured South Africa and defeated them in a three, albeit a three, test series. What did we learn there? That Australia is really as good as what we thought they were
2: well, we learned that um that certainly Australia is uh you know upwardly mobile uh and a, and a, and a team whose whose kind of time has come and and once again, as I said before, a team uh in, with with whom it, for whom everything has aligned at once uh you know it's a kind of a magical moment when that when that takes place when uh, every player is playing at the at the peak of their form uh and the team is playing at greater than the sum of its parts uh you know this is not on the face of it uh, a super talented australian team in the way that the australian team was that you know dominated international cricket for for 15 years from the from the mid 1990s but um but it is an infinitely resourceful team and a very resilient team and a team that obviously enjoys its own company and you know enjoys sort of uh le- leaping the hurdles that, that it's setting itself. I think Clark's been very realistic in his public professions about the progress that the team has made. I think the other thing is that I think that international creed at the moment is a pretty is a pretty brittle space. Uh a lot of teams have a lot of kind of explosive talents and ability to uh, to dominate for hours at a time. But uh, a lot of teams, um, the margins in Test matches have become enormous, which suggests to me that um, the teams are just not very resilient at the same time. They're tending to get absolutely blown away. Uh, So perhaps we're actually seeing a different or a new current in the way in which Test cricket is playing, which may actually be more exciting, um, but in the end it may not be conducive to the building of a great dynasty around this Australian team in the sense that we had a a dynasty before and and for the West Indies before that.
0: What does it say, finally, Gideon, about Cricket Australia, this success over the last six months?
2: Well, it says to me that they made a very good decision um, at exactly the right time where Darren Lehman was concerned um, there was a lot of there was a fair bit of luck involved in that though at the same time it was it was the fact that Lehman was in England at the time coaching Australia a that made him readily available to uh to succeed Mickey Arthur two weeks out of course from the uh, from the from the very first test match uh and it just so happened that you know Darren Lehman was exactly the right man at exactly the right time with exactly the right team. I don't think any of us could have foreseen that, not even Cricket Australia. Um, and I, I think it's also a credit to a group of men who don't generally get um, a lot of public kudos and that's the selectors. They have made a lot of very, very good calls over the last nine months often in defiance of uh, public and media moods, but um, recalling Mitchell Johnson, if you'd put that out to a a poll of viewers or a a newspaper popularity contest, not a lot of people would have have placed their vote on uh, on Mitchell Johnson as a a potential match winner. But as it was, um, he had been a match winner before. He'd actually been the last Australian bowler to win an Ashes Test match. Uh, back in 2010-11. So he'd had these moments before, and I think he fitted in perfectly alongside Ryan Harrison and Peter Sittle, who are two very astute, uh, very economical kind of control bowlers. It was the perfect environment in which to unleash Johnson and to allow him to go and, as they say these days, express himself. And the selectors got that exactly right. So, um, So all credit to them.
0: Indeed. All right. Express express yourself indeed he did. And we're very grateful. Well, Australian cricket fans are. Uh, Gideon, always good to chat. Uh, Well done on the book. It is called Ashes to Ashes, How Australia Came Back and England Came Unstuck 2013-2014. Thanks a lot for having a chat.
2: Pleasure. Thanks, Barry. Anytime. Great Australian Ute Stories is a collection of heartwarming
0: tales edited by Ute aficionado John Bryant. The book celebrates the joy of circle work. Feral Utes. And the youth's strange ability to save the day, win the girl and delight the dog. No matter what you drive, this collection will charm you with its warmth and laconic humour. Great Australian Youth Stories is available from ABC shops, centres, shop online and good bookstores. This is 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grandstand.
2: We are going to build our own planet.
0: From the
1: BBC, Richard Hammond builds a planet. First, we have to gather up the basic
2: raw materials.
1: This exciting series, using stunning interactive CGI, draws on specially filmed interviews with the world's top scientists to show step-by-step how
0: a world is put together. As an engineering challenge, it doesn't get much bigger. Richard
1: Hammond builds a planet. From ABC Shops, Centres, ABC Shop Online and DVD retailers.
0: My dad used to always tell me that, look, if you don't have an umpire, you don't have a game, if I ever happen to whinge about an umpire. But uh, it's it's a challenging task, and it can be, well, you would think a thankless one, but it's not. There is something very special about it, and my next two guests know all about that because they've umpired at the elite level. Dean Margetts, an AFL field umpire. Dale Edwick, an AFL goal umpire, in the studio with me now. Let's find out more. Gentlemen, thank you for coming in. Thank Thanks you Barry, very nice. great
1: to be down in the South West again.
0: Alright, uh, Dean, start with you. The, what was it that, that got you interested in becoming an umpire in the first place?
1: It's quite simply Barry, I love football. Um, I'd played junior footy since the age of 7 and thoroughly enjoyed my playing career. Got to the point where I'd played about 50-odd senior community games. Um, And then, obviously, my skinny frame, as you can see, couldn't handle the rigours of combat anymore, so I chose a different path, and that was to coach a junior side, which still kept the fire and the passion for the game alive, coaching some junior kids. And then I got to a point where that was difficult with work uh, you know, timing that they need to do training the kids, so I um, picked up the local paper and it said, umpires wanted, and I thought to myself, that can't be too hard, surely I could do a couple of years of that. And fortunately for me, it's taken me on a wonderful journey where I um, did a few... Years at junior level, got promoted to the Waffle, and in 2002, I embarked on the AFL career, and I'm into my 12th season this year, which obviously um, kicks off next Friday night for me, which with the Fremantle on Collingwood game, which I'm quite excited about.
0: What's it like in the the middle of a tight game, a uh, big crowd? Take us there. What, what goes through your mind?
1: Oh, it's exciting. Um, certainly, as an umpire, the game's never been as scrutinised as it is today mm. with cameras and expectation of us to get the right decision all the time. Um, but for us, we're prepared well, we train well, and I suppose that's what we crave is the um, the close game and the, the big crowds and I suppose a bit of a heckle here or there from the, the fans as well.
0: Do you get into like a state of flow though? Is there something about being, you know, this experience where you, f- you, you feel as if you're, you're in a high, per- well you are, you're in yeah. a high performance.
1: Absolutely, ah. Uh, I suppose uh, having been, having done 200 plus AFL games, you now I've experienced all the things that can probably happen in a game, so I'm not expecting anything I can't control. Um, at the end of the day, we want to be as transparent as possible, and if the players, who are the stars and why the people here to watch, um, can fight the result out and the outcome is contributed by their outcomes, that's important for us, but we don't like to sort of be the, the centre of attention too often, and generally when we are, it's because we've made the wrong call.
2: Yeah.
0: Dale, what about you? Uh, how did you get into goal umpiring? Uh,
1: it was... I actually
3: started as a field umpire as well um I started in juniors uh wanting a little bit of extra cash as a 14 year old and started umpiring juniors because the coach of the junior region was a family friend and yeah so I got involved that way and worked through umpired a, a couple of years uh at Waffle as a as a Colts field umpire um and then at the end of 1999 they asked me not to come back uh, at which stage, the uh, goal umpires coach, who ha- coincidentally happened to be the coach of my junior region when I first started, uh, was a goal umpires coach, and uh, he asked me to come down and wave the flags, Yeah, and it was a camaraderie of the group that I really loved, and the umpiring and, and the football, and uh, yeah, that's why I came back as a flag waver.
0: With technology, there seems to be more of a focus on the goal umpire now, because of those, you know, the fact that you can go... To the third umpire, if you like, to find or whatever they call it, yep. footy, to upstairs. Uh, is that encouraging more people? Because the the goal umpire is is a bit more in the spotlight.
3: Oh, I, I'm, it's an interesting one. The uh, the decision review system mm. is um, something that we've uh, been encouraged to take. Um, the technology is there now, uh, and they're anything that's uh, remotely close. They want us to review anything that you go. Ooh, that was close we uh, we are encouraged to review just to make sure that we do get it right and if we have that decision where we initially think it was a goal for example but then they come back and say no it was touched we're, we're not uh, criticised for that mm. because we mm. at the end we ultimately get the decision right yeah and I think, you know, it's probably added a little bit more theatre to the game as well. You know, people looking at the big screen saying, oh, and then, you know, the decision comes a bit like in cricket with the uh, third umpire as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. In terms of when you go out to the community and you're about to go out to uh, parts of the southwest, what are you seeing among the, the, the kids you talk to in terms of interest for, for
1: umpiring? We see probably a challenge as far as we're not getting... We're getting some young kids starting Umpiring Barry, which is great, but I suppose I guess the uh, the retention of umpires is difficult when um I suppose kids fifteen, sixteen, seventeen start to get their cars and licenses, etc The excitement probably wanes for umpiring and I think across the country every week we have about eighteen thousand games of footy and we only fill them out that eleven thousand umpires, which is a little bit sad. So I suppose the retention of umpires is our biggest challenge mm-hmm. and I suppose part of Dale and Myself, um, tour this week is to try and say to you guys out in the community that there are pathways to get to the waffle and the AFL level. Um, if you love your craft, um, it can take on an exciting, wild ride and also be you know financially profitable for you as well.
0: I mean, how do you do it? How how do you try and make it interesting enough so that uh, they will, kids will want to get well, involved?
1: I certainly think these shows are a part mm. of that to to sell the message that we all grew up barracking for a football side we all grew up loving the game um, but as we all know the game needs to be serviced and if i can just share a brief story i remember when i was a 14 year old and my dad was the manager of our our team when i was playing juniors we were all ready to go before the game and he came and said look guys a dad has to umpire because the umpire hasn't turned up and i remember looking around that sea of faces in that room and all the disappointment and the upset looks was because the game wasn't going to be real because the real umpire wasn't there and I drive past community grounds every weekend, and sometimes see that umpire. And I feel sad because I'd love those kids to experience the the real umpire on the green, red or yellow shirt, whatever it might be these days, to provide them the same game day experience that we get to provide at the AFL level.
0: Yeah, what what do you need, do you think, to to be an umpire?
1: i
3: uh, definitely a passion for the game, yeah. and uh, that's the main reason I think why we all get into umpiring is you know. We might not have had the skills as a player, but we'd still have the passion for the game, and that's definitely one of the, the big things. Uh, thick skin does help as well when you do get a little bit of the uh, the abuse. The field umpires are okay because they get to run away from it, but uh, goal umpires <laughs> just stand there and take it.
0: My guest, Dean Margets, AFL field umpire, and Dale Edwick, AFL goal umpire. I mean, what's it like? Is it is it harder now, Dean, uh, in terms of the as you said there, the scrutiny? Uh, and technology brings the game even closer to the spectators. they feel like they know it all uh, what's it, you know, Has it become harder in that last decade or so
1: Definitely. the last I think each year it changes i 'm um, fortunate enough, I get to go to the Eagles and dockers training sessions regularly and just the way they train their simulation, the way they sort of carry the ball, the congestion because there are some times in a game i 've done where there 's literally thirty six players within a fifty meter mm-hmm. arc. Um, and the best thing about it being the best umpire is having the best position and if you can't see the ball you can't see a free kick and it is difficult when you've got that many many bodies around the ball that makes it difficult so we've just got to try and keep our distance and obviously pull the rein when we think it's the the right decision to make.
0: What's the banter? Do you have any banter with with players these days because we always hear about the 1970s there was a great deal of banter in the 80s. What's it like now?
1: Big difference with the banter in the 70s and 80s is I've got a microphone on my chest so (laughs) anything I can say Mm -hmm. is obviously picked up by supporters my coaches etc of the banters probably pre-game and probably post-game briefly um, because we have to go and meet both sides before each game shake their hand wish them all the best and sometimes players will engage in conversation ask questions occasionally there's the odd word on the field but as I say the game's so quick now that they can't afford to be spending time talking to me or vice versa because there's things happening and literally the communication vest that we wear do pick up most things that are said so I guess what stays on the field literally stays on the field these (laughs) days I won't break the code of silence here that's for sure
0: what about when you're close to the crowd, Dale? Is it a goal umpire? What, what's it like? Do you cop much from the...
3: Yeah, they, they let you know if they, they think that you got it wrong. Mm. And, uh, and, yeah, it's certainly my second game. It was uh, uh, it's certainly an experience. You yeah, know, one that brushed the post, and I think I was the only person that saw it, and suddenly 40,000 people <laughs> boo you. Yeah. You, you know that, yeah, <laughs> you know that you're there. And uh, it, it's, it's part and parcel of the game, and it certainly yeah you take it on board and you know, enjoy it and, you know, soak it up um and there are t- times when the balls up the other end another postcode and yeah you, know, you hear the odd comment and yeah you know, sometimes you know,
0: it does make you smile <laughs> you, need, <laughs> you need a thick skin has it improved because we seem to have there's a lot more security around now there's a lot more monitoring of what mm. the crowd gets up to do you think they're a bit better behaved than what they were i certainly
3: i i haven't re- received anything directly mm. abusive um where security has really uh, had to intervene. I did have a screwdriver thrown at me at Bassendean once. Uh, yeah. That was uh, interesting. The security guard picked it up. I didn't even know until he'd picked it up. But, um, yeah, I, I think by, by and large that the crowds are certainly better behaved. And you, you see the uh, incident with Adam Goods last year and mm. the security were very quick to uh, get on the scene uh, with that game in Melbourne. And, yeah there's likewise over here, yeah. You know, People don't put up with things now.
0: Yeah, so it's it's more of a, a rarity because we want to encourage people, obviously, to get, yes. <laughs> get get involved. Run us through what happens at the end of the game. So you've just come in, uh, obviously, the adrenaline's still flowing. What what happens? Do you have a, a debrief then, or is it? Do you wait till Monday? And what, what yeah, happens when you? Pretty do much it?
1: as a team, we all come off as a group and we yeah. sit down our respective corners and get the ice bags out and basically have a drink and just relax for half an hour um the goal umpires like dale and his crew will obviously finalize the the match result card so obviously the score cards can be put through so the afl can ring all the appropriate scores through then our coaches will come down give us a bit of a brief debrief um don't say too much because obviously you have to go back and watch the vision and, and obviously we get assessed off probably the tv more than live stuff and then um we'll sit down as a field umpiring crew and go through the brownlow medal vote some days that can take Half an hour. Some days it can take ten minutes. Some days it's a big argument. It takes an hour. It just all depends on the nature of the game. But as a group, we generally come off together and we certainly share the spoils and disappointments together as well.
0: Is it? You mentioned earlier that there's a career opportunity. You know, if you get to the elite levels, Um, so you can you can work full time. Is that the state of play when it comes to pay wise?
1: Yeah, all umpires pretty much have a uh, are part-time umpires yeah. uh, and they work full-time obviously got a lot of careers i mean you never quite know an umpiring is going to finish through injury through form through circumstance um but there is certainly a good pathway if you're a, a young 20 year old coming through the system and had a you know 15 plus year career at the afl level it can be a certainly a good little sidelight for your life and you know set you up in some good ways if you're watching a game
0: uh, can you tell when an umpire is on song yes yeah why Definitely. what are the what, what do you look for
1: the way they carry themselves the composure that they show on the field Um, the the biggest thing about umpiring is composure because when the heat's on and the crowds on the players are up and about if you start to show signs of distress and anxiety players pick up on that so the best umpires are the ones who can make a decision it might be the wrong one but they sell it to the supporters and the players that it's correct and that's normally the mark of a pretty good umpire and most of probably our top 10 umpires do display that weekly
0: what about the mindset? Uh, what What do you need there, Dale, to, to to be able to move on? Say you've made an error.
3: Yeah, that, that is quite uh, difficult, um, particularly as a goal umpire. Uh, I think because you don't there can be the situation where the ball's up the other end and you you're you just sitting up keep on dwelling on what's happened. Mm-hmm. But the the mindset is you have to move on. Um, uh, the last thing you need to do is is dwell on something that you may have uh, erred on. Previously, because if you do err on something that happened earlier in the quarter, then I'd say you'll make another uh, another blue. Yeah. Um, so you need to you need to move on as quickly as you can.
1: And there's no such thing as a square up decision either, Barry. Either if I make a mistake against West Coast, I don't go looking for one to even up no. major. That's a question that's commonly asked, and that does not happen.
0: No. <laughs> okay, all right, we'll take your word on it. Uh, <laughs> Dean Margetts, <laughs> AFL field umpire, Dale Edwick, AFL goal umpire. Thank you very much. Cheers, thanks very
1: thanks, much, thanks Aaron. you very much. Giving it 110% with Barry Nichols on ABC Grand Center.
0: Well, that's your lot for this week. Thank you very much for tuning in. A reminder we heard from Gideon Haig about his reflections on the 2013 2014 back to back Ashes series. Dean Margetts, AFL field umpire, was also along telling us about some of the challenges of attracting umpires to the game in this day and age. Don't forget, you can find us online. All you have to do is search 110% with Barry Nichols, and this show will turn up on the ABC Grandstand site. Or indeed, you can find us on iTunes. There are more than 50 back episodes if you'd like to listen to quite a diverse range of guests that we've featured over the last three years. Look forward to chatting with you next time.